awesome. <laughs> so we're very excited to have Ryan. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, my pleasure. And I, yeah. like I told uh, Eric, it's, uh, it's a blessed thing to, be, to see so many familiar faces. Uh, you know, I haven't seen so many for, for so long because uh, we are, are going about uh, our business down in the uh, southeastern corner of the cities, preaching the gospel and, and teaching the word. But it's just a blessing to, to see you and reconnect. And I will... Uh, I'll stick around for a little bit afterwards if anybody wants to come and talk and catch up. I, I, I have talked to some of you already, but I certainly would like to catch up with some more of you. Uh, so tonight what we are going to do, and, and this is going to be hard for me because I am a mobile person. I like to walk around, and I have a leash attached to me right now. <laughs> so I'm going to have to be disciplined to be uh, here and uh, less animated, I guess. So maybe... Uh, we'll see how that goes. If you see me getting a little jittery, that's why. Uh, tonight we are going to be going through the Minor Prophets. And uh, the Minor Prophets are, are, are something that are, much like a lot of the Old Testament, it gets neglected in the modern church. Uh, a lot of people w- would turn to, say, Haggai, Zechariah, Zephaniah. And I think if you went on and polled uh, professing Christians and asked them, what's, what's this book about? It would be interesting to see those results. And uh, tonight, we're certainly not going to be able to get through all of the minor prophets. Uh, Instead, what we're going to do is give somewhat of an overview. What are these books? In fact, did you know that uh, back in ancient Israel, these 12 were one book? It's very interesting. These 12 were one book. It was called the Book of the Twelve. So we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at the uh, historical dynamics of the minor prophets. In order to understand them, we, of course, need to be clothed with the context, being clothed with the history. What was going on then? What, was, what were the uh, political dynamics in Israel? What were the religious dynamics in Israel? Uh, what, what was going on with the fractured kingdom? All of these things are important to consider as we read the minor prophets. So we're going to do an overview of the, of the Book of the Twelve. Then we're going to step back and glean from uh, the three H's, uh, from Hosea, from Habakkuk, and from Haggai. We're going to take specific passages, because I think there are three passages here that will well demonstrate the overall message uh, of the Minor Prophets. And the title, there's a lot of titles you could go with as far as the Minor Prophets, but the title that I chose for tonight is Repentance, Faith, and the Promise. Certainly, you could tag this on to the, the whole Bible as its, uh, as its primary message and, and call, uh, which is, is good to know. But ultimately, we're going to be looking at the minor prophets through these. And each of the scriptures that we're going to look at, we're going to see repentance. Repenting from what? We're going to look at faith. What was faith? There is a primary passage in Habakkuk which declares... The just shall live by faith. In what context was that given? And then we're going to look at Haggai. Uh, Haggai, there is a promise to a man named Zerubbabel. And even his name is significant. So those three passages we're going to explore. And then we'll step back. Hopefully in about an hour from now, I can get through that sufficiently. And we'll step back, and I want to open it up for discussion. Since this is a worldview night, I understand, this is the night where you are exploring worldviews. As we know, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. So I want us all to step back 
and think, how do these messages that we read tonight confront what we are seeing in our culture? And I think as you go, you're going to see, uh, automatically see some implications rise from the text and see where the rubber uh, meets the so-called road because we are in the midst of a cultural decay. We are in the midst of a, a church culture that is, as far as throughout the U.S. and the world, that is full of counterfeits and idolatry. And we are going to see uh, the scriptures speak to these things and also speak to us. So before we start, let's go before our king in prayer, and then we will, we will launch. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have saved all of us into your church, which goes beyond the walls of individual churches, beyond the borders of nations. By the blood of your Son, you have purchased a people for yourself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Lord, we stand before you now forgiven. We know your Son walks in our midst. He is with us. You have given us your Holy Spirit. So, Father, collectively, as your people, we bow before your throne. We bow the knees of our hearts before you, thanking you for sending Christ, our Lord. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he is raised in interceding for us in the heavenlies right now as we speak. And Father, we ask you to illuminate our hearts and minds to see the hope of our calling, to see the need for continued repentance, the high calling of faith, what it means and what we need to do. And Lord, may we cling to the promise which stretches through all of the scriptures and is still our hope today. May we live by faith in this promise and patiently wait for it. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, let's start. Again, we're going to do a quick overview of the Book of the Twelve. I want you to at least come away with knowing what the Book of the Twelve is. Uh, we have come to know them as the Minor Prophets, but being referred to as the Minor Prophets came somewhat late in history. It was several centuries after uh, the New Testament was written that they started to be called, declared the so-called Minor Prophets. Now, why are they called the Minor Prophets? It has nothing to do with uh, uh, insignificance or, or age. Uh, it has everything to do with length. If you have read these books, which I hope you have they are uh, short in, shorter in length. Now, some, like, uh, like uh, Zechariah, stretches it and, and is, is a bit longer, but you have some that are one chapter. So, in comparison to, say, Ezekiel or Jeremiah, uh, they are less as far as length go, but certainly their significance is, uh, is just as high as the rest of the Scripture. They are, again, drawing from Timothy, useful, profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. So these prophets uh, were written throughout the span of about 300 years. And let's take a look at all of them. Now, why is it called the Book of the Twelve? Well, all 12 of these in ancient Israel, if you would have gone into a synagogue... It would have been, these would have been contained in one scroll. So it was called the Book of the Twelve because it consists of the writings of twelve prophets. 
So this would have been one of the scrolls that was unrolled. Now everyone knew that there, these were a collection of writings from over the centuries, but they unfold. And I've done some interesting reading about whether or not there is uh, a, a purpose to their order. And I think there may be some things there, but I, I, I'm hesitant because uh, there, I think there's enough gray area as to whether or not it's pushing it a little bit. So ultimately, I think we do uh, best take each individual author within their own context, drawing it out. And if there is any flow or organization, it'd be certainly secondary. So let's go through this. And, and as we go through this, I, I, th I think all of these are on there. Um, that way, uh, let me decode uh, kind of the, uh, the, the terms here. Um, obviously, we have the book, the date, and then you see the NK or SK. NK uh, signifies Northern Kingdom, and we'll get to this in a second. There was a, a, a huge event in ancient Israel with the split of the kingdom, and we'll talk about that. And it's helpful to understand whether or not a, a prophet is speaking in the midst of the Northern Kingdom or the Southern Kingdom. It helps us with interpretive issues, and I'll get into this in a moment. So Hosea was a prophet of the Northern Kingdom otherwise called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim or Samaria. And then you have someone uh, like Joel who was a prophet of the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. We'll get into the historical dynamics of this in a moment. Now when you get down to the bottom there, you'll see that there is an EX. EX signifies that these are writings of the ex after the exile. And I'll highlight these dates in, in a moment. Uh, but the exile is another huge event in salvation history. Uh, so all of these, you see that Hosea, uh, Joel, Amos, uh, they, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, they all ministered in a, in a fairly short, compact period of time. Micah, by the way, has prophecies uh, that relate to both the uh, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, then you have uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Now we're going to get into Habakkuk tonight. And uh, this is the time approaching the fall of Jerusalem. So uh, Nahum, which is more about uh, the destruction of, of Assyria, of Nineveh, uh, whereas uh, Habakkuk and Zephaniah are really focused on, uh, within the original context, it's, there's the coming exile and destruction of Jerusalem is coming. So these promises are coming. Now, one of the dynamics that we need to recognize in the Minor Prophets and in all of prophecy is a near-far dynamic. Uh, near-far dynamic, what that means is so often the biblical authors are always, and they always are speaking through what I would call the transparency of the near. There are near events there, are, there is Assyria coming. The Babylonians are being roused up. We'll see these dynamics. Yes, these are the near, meaning close to them historically. But as we read through the minor prophets and all the prophets, we read proclamations of the coming judgment of the world, the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. And we, we know that those things are yet future still. And that will be important even when we, when we uh, glean some of the things from Habakkuk. So there is a transparency of the near looking forward to the far. 
when you get to Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, this is after the exile. This is during the time when they are going back into the land. Uh, in, a, in a very real sense, uh, Israel has never come back from its exile. And uh, I'll talk about that more when we get to uh, the, the fall of Jerusalem. But Israel really has never come back from its exile. And I'll tell you why I think that certainly the people have physically been in the land. And I, do, and I certainly think that there, are, there is prophetic significance to what we have seen go on over the last 60 years in Israel and Jerusalem. I, I believe that. But Israel, even though there are 6 million Jews living in Israel right now, they are, in another sense, still in exile. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in, in, in a moment. So Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi. Uh, Malachi is... Uh, when I taught the, uh, a course on this before, I, I like to call Malachi a, a voice before the silence. Because Malachi really was the, the last voice before the prophetic word went silent for several hundred years. And really that voice was shattered by a voice crying out in the wilderness, was it not, when the Baptist came. So uh, Malachi really is this voice before the silence. It's very interesting to read the last part of Malachi. Um, we won't read it now, but it's the last verses we read in the Old Testament, calling the people to remember the law of Moses and to look forward to the coming of the prophet Elijah, which is one of, the, one of the primary reasons why Jews still place a, uh, a spot for Elijah at Passover. Did you know that? They, they, they are looking forward to the, the coming of Elijah. And Christ did say Elijah is coming, uh, and he already had come in a near sense with the Baptist. So this is a, a, an overview of the Book of the Twelve. Uh, from Hosea to Malachi, uh, this is about 300 years of rich prophetic declaration, exhortation, rebuke. Now let's get into uh, the setting here. In ancient Israel, after Israel as a nation was taken out from Egypt, they wandered. And most of the ones that were taken out of Egypt died in the wilderness. Joshua took them into the land, and that ushered us in to the period of what is called the Judges. Now, during this whole time, who was Israel's king? Yes, God. God was their king. He dwelled with them. The, that was what the tabernacle was for, the Ark of the Covenant. He dwelled with them in a special way. And as we go into the period of the Judges, these were not kings. Judges were ones were rulers and judges that were raised up to bring uh, a, um, a restoration to faithfulness. But God was their king. Now, as we progress, we come to uh, really what most would consider the last judge, who is Samuel. Samuel is the bridge between the judges and the monarchy. Why? Because, remember, it was Samuel that the people requested. He saw, they saw that the sons were blowing it. They weren't, uh, uh, they, they, they were, were wicked, they were not ruling the people well, so they requested a king. And God, of course, when he said, to, what did he say to Samuel? They have not rejected you, but me. Therefore, I am going to give them a king. 
and gave them Saul. Uh, Saul fell, and then God chose David. And through David, he promised an eternal dynasty. So it went on, passed on to Solomon. Now, as we read through uh, Solomon's life, we see Solomon fell into idolatry and wickedness. In fact, a mountain to the uh, east of Jerusalem is still called the Mount of Sin till today because that was the mount that is traditionally known where Solomon sacrificed to the gods of his wives. And because of this, the Lord fractured the kingdom. So after Solomon, he fractured the kingdom. Now this map you can kind of see. I hope, uh, I hope it's large enough. I think you ha- is, did that make it onto the PowerPoint too? It fractured. Now, what, what happened? After uh, Solomon, there, uh, Rehoboam was, uh, was king. And there was another uh, man named Jeroboam. And what's very interesting is we see God bringing the offer before Jeroboam and saying, if you follow me, I will make you like David. Now, we look, look back, and what a, what a promise that would be. And ultimately, what happened was Rehoboam was foolish, and under Solomon's kingdom, they were pressed in. And they came, and they said, Solomon has worked us too hard, lessen the load. So Rehoboam went to his counselors, his father's counselors, and they said, listen to the people. Uh, in a sense that lessen the load. Then he went to his buddies. He went to his friends, and they said double it. So he listened to his friends. And through that, all of Israel said, we're going back. And they said, what do we have to do with David? So it was split, and ten tribes went to the north. Now, there was a war coming up, and then there was a prophet that came and said, don't go up, this is for me. That's what the Lord said. So they went back, and thus the kingdom, the kingdom fractured. And it's this context now that we see the minor prophets prophesying in. Now, to understand the northern kingdom, the best name to understand is Jeroboam. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. Okay, we're going to read 25 through 33. So he went to the, to the north... It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and, one in, uh, and he put one in Dan. 
Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from, priests from all the people who were not the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam, remember, the Lord said, if you follow me, I will make you like David. Did Jeroboam believe God? No, this is an issue of faith. And uh, this is actually a picture that um, I took uh, when I was in Israel in, um, uh, in February. This is uh, Jeroboam's altar in Dan. They have unearthed Jeroboam's altar in Dan. Now, the steel part isn't original. <laughs> uh, uh, but that's to give an idea of how large this would have been. Uh, and you see the top, those are, would have been the horns of the altar. But uh, Dan uh, to, uh, down to Bethel, that, that would have been the, the northern and southern borders of the northern kingdom. In the unified kingdom, or the united kingdom, uh, from Dan to Beersheba would have been the typical way the borders were addressed. So Jeroboam, note what he did. He said in his heart, if they go back to Jerusalem, and why would he think this? Why would he be worried about them going back to Jerusalem? And, and, and just the law. It, you couldn't worship wherever you wanted in, in the sense of, of sacrifices. The Lord, the Lord had prescribed in the law of Moses a specific manner and specific feasts. And you couldn't make your own stuff up, which is what happened. So he was afraid of them going back to Jerusalem. He, he saw this before them, and instead... I mean, it sounds just, how could this have happened? But he made two golden calves and said, behold your gods. And to understand the, the northern kingdom, Jeroboam is the name to remember. Why? Because every single king from the northern kingdom is recorded as wicked. They put up the donut. Zero. There, there was one, one king that got, I would say, an F+, plus, and that's Jehu. Why? Because Jehu went and destroyed Ahab and his cohorts. And the Lord said, this pleased me that you carried this out. But he still went off after idols and was recorded as wicked. So it's within this context, as you read the prophets from the northern kingdom, to know that this uh, country was rampant with idolatry, with uh, Baal worship. Baal worship was primary in the northern kingdom. And of course, uh, we know well the showdown uh, on Mount Carmel. It was within uh, the context of when uh, these minor prophets would have been, it's that very culture and context, uh, that these things would have been uh, going on, Baal worship. So Jeroboam, and, and you see his name brought up because the kings, it would be recorded, they went in the manner of Jeroboam. They committed the sins of Jeroboam. 
Now, if Jeroboam would have had faith and believed God, it would have been profitable. He says, if God's going to be true to His word, go back to Jerusalem. <coughs> Fulfill what the law of the Lord commands. But we see he was faithless. He lacked faith. And thus, his dynasty is one of sin and rebellion. Every single king, he went along with the sin of Jeroboam. Now, the northern or the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, would, the, the, the person that the kings of Judah were always compared to was who? David. It's very interesting reading uh, kings and chronicles. Either they followed like David, or they did not follow like David. But everyone from the northern kingdom was in line with Jeroboam. So those two names are good to remember, is when you're tracing the, the kingship. Now, within the, the northern kingdom, we see there that 930, and as far as dates go with me, uh, I'm very, uh, as far as being precise in particular, uh, I am very hesitant to ever put an exact date on anything that ancient. So these are general dates within a couple years here and there. Uh, and 930 B.C. is right in about the time that uh, the kingdom split. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and destroyed the north. And they were carried off into exile. So those that were prophesying from the north and within the north were often looking forward to this date. The Lord was stirring up the Assyrians. So let's look at one of these northern prophets. Turn to Hosea. Hosea is the first of the book of the twelve, at least the first that is, is read. And you'll find this at the very back of your old, the Old Testament. These are in order, starting with Hosea. One of the things that you'll notice as far as thematic elements, in the books of the Minor Prophets, or the Book of the Twelve, and actually even beyond this, uh, beyond in all the prophets, you will see uh, calls to repentance, promises of judgment and wrath. But... Almost all the time, at the end, there is a promise of restoration. And the Lord is always going back to His promises to Abraham and to David. It's not because of how faithful they are or because of anything they've done. It's because He is a covenant-keeping God whose truth always remains steadfast. And that's one thing that's key. When looking at the promises made to David and to Abraham, they are what is known as unilateral covenants. Meaning God said He's going to do this. And it isn't dependent on man's will or effort. Does that sound familiar? And that's Romans 9. It isn't dependent on that. God fulfilling His promise to Abraham is dependent on God's faithfulness. God fulfilling His promise to David is not dependent on the faithfulness of David's offspring. It's, it's dependent on God's faithfulness. And so 
this is that, that promise. But within the midst of this, Israel had ran after and played the whore. And oftentimes in the prophets, there is marriage language. Why? They look back at Sinai as a marriage covenant. Now, Sinai is different than the most, uh, rather than the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant. Because if you carefully read the covenant at Sinai, it was a bilateral covenant. If you read that, remember, God says there are blessings and curses if you do this. And of course, remember, they all, yes, we will do it. And of course, they broke the covenant. And the Lord, in His faithfulness, brought about the curses that we read about in Deuteronomy. Nevertheless, throughout all of the time, God is pleading with His people to repent from idolatry. Now, Hosea is given to the northern kingdom. And one of the more famous aspects of Hosea is, and uh, interesting ones that can really bring up a lot of conversation, is uh, what God had Hosea do. A lot of, uh, being a prophet in the Old Testament wasn't very fun. I'll just put it that way. It was a tough job. Uh, Hosea is uh, called to take a prostitute as his wife. And this is to be emblematic of God and Israel. And I think this is a fitting way to launch off uh, the Minor Prophets or the Book of the Twelve, as it does set a theme that we will see throughout the Minor Prophets the wickedness of man, the wickedness of Israel. But we see God as always being faithful. Always. And so, if there, again, like, that's when I, uh, when I was talking about whether there is a theme or a, a, a purpose to how the... Uh, the Book of the Twelve Flows, the order. I, I, again, I don't know for sure if that's intended, but nevertheless, it is a good theme that we will see throughout the Book of the Twelve. Now, let's read the end of uh, Hosea here. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the works of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. So we see, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. This is a call to repentance. They have gone after other gods, the counterfeits. And this is the call. And what is it? It's a plea for, first off, forgiveness. Remove our iniquity. And if I don't get to this, I'll talk about this now. As we look in throughout the Old Testament, we see the promise and pleadings for the removal of iniquity. But... The Old Covenant never fully removed sin. It did not take it away once and for all. And Hebrews gets into this in in such a beautiful way. But throughout these times, there is apostasy. And then 
restoration. Remember, uh, if you ever read Judges, what happens? There is a revival under Gideon, then back in the sewer. Then there's a revival, back in the sewer. Up, down, up, down. Then you get to the kings. Then it's all evens. No. (laughs) Then it's up, down, up, down. We see there is no lasting righteousness. And I'm convinced that this is intentional. God has brought this about on the scene of human history to demonstrate the need for a better covenant, a better priesthood, and a better king. All right, let's move on to Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk is uh, a few, and this is one that we will we'll spend some time on. And actually, you know what? Now I don't have time for that. I'm up against the clock. I had uh, uh, intended to have us read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as a New Testament tie-in. Write that down and read it, because what I wanted to demonstrate... Oh, I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> is how important it is for us to, to read and heed the whole counsel of God. And what the, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is uh, the, the generation that came out of Egypt, and some of them practiced idolatry, and we read about God's judgment coming upon them. And others were uh, uh, engaged in sexual immorality, and God's judgment came. And what did Paul say? These things were written for our instruction so that we may not crave evil things. The Old Testament is so often seen as, oh, we, we got something better now. And, and, and we do. We have a better covenant. But we see how great that covenant is through understanding God's work in all of history. Because our God works in time and in history, because he's a true and living God. That's what makes our faith different from every other faith conjured up, is it's a true and living God who works in time and space. History is his. And history teaches us. And that's why as we go through the whole counsel of God, this is what he has written down for our instruction. And yes, we are Gentiles grafted into these promises given to Israel, and thus this history becomes our history. When at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul calls his Gentile, primarily Gentile audience, brothers, and he says, Remember, our fathers were under the wilderness, were, were, uh, came out of Egypt. So uh, again, they, they, the Gentiles don't become Israelites. They become, as we read in, in Romans 11, grafted in to Israel's promises. And thus, this history becomes our history that we learn from, that we read, that we heed. Dovetailing on that, let's move to Habakkuk. Now, again, in 722, uh, Assyria brought low the northern kingdom. And again, there were... There were uh, just ebbs and flows in the, in the southern kingdom. You had uh, righteous kings rise up like Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. But then you would have evil and wicked kings like Ahaz. And as the southern kingdom outlived the northern kingdom, 
they still had an appointment with their God. And that brings us to Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk is interesting because uh, Habakkuk is now looking forward knowing there is, number one, wickedness in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, but also knowing uh, that uh, judgment is coming by the hand of the Chaldeans. It's very interesting to read the beginning of uh, Habakkuk because it's, he, he brings a complaint before the Lord how wicked everyone is in Jerusalem. And word comes back. And the word is, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans are Babylonians. And they are going to be my, my axe. Well, Habakkuk doesn't like that. Well, wait, they're worse than we are. And you're raising them up to take us? And so he complains again. And then he says, I'm going to go up to the watchtower and, and wait for your response. And this is what we read. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it playing on tablets so he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Okay, so let's first entrench ourselves in this because... We've all heard this, the righteous will live by faith, right? It's uh, something that is brought up several times in the New Testament. But let's consider what this means. First, consider what Habakkuk, who at this point is a righteous man. He is a righteous man in the midst of an unrighteous people, looking at what surrounds him. He sees the wickedness around him in Jerusalem and in Judea. And then he, uh, a, a, a Gentile nation is going to come and take away the people, the priesthood, and destroy the city. And think of that. I mean, we, we're, we look back knowing how the story is going to unfold. But place yourself in Habakkuk's situation. Are things hopeful? As far as what he sees, no. And that is where faith comes in. Everyone knows that God has made promises. Everyone who reads the scriptures knows that God has made promises that he is going to fulfill. And therefore, Habakkuk is, is given this this vision and, and God's promises to vindicate his people, to redeem Jerusalem, to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David, they are coming. If it seems slow, wait. Patience. Remember what faith is. Faith is the evidence or substance of that which is unseen. And as one in Jerusalem at that point was looking at, what are they seeing? What are they about to see? Think of it. All they have known 
for centuries was living in Jerusalem with the temple, with the king, with the priesthood. And what's going to happen? The king is going to be taken off into Babylon. The city is going to be taken. The temple is going to be destroyed. The people are going to be exiled. The priesthood is going to be removed. What is happening? God says, my righteous one will live by trusting my promises. Life. Now, what I want to do is is look at, and again, faith here we see as something that is active. Even no matter what comes about, no matter how bad things seem, God is still in control and He still will fulfill His promises. We live by faith, not by sight. Very interesting, last time I was in Israel, uh, the almond trees were starting to bud. And uh, almond trees are beautiful and white. And um, our, uh, our guide uh, named Aaron uh, said, the almond tree is compared to the Word of God. And here's why. Uh, the almond tree is the first to bud, but the last to bear fruit. And therefore, it's very much like what the faithful needs to do as they look at the Word of God. The Word of God has bloomed, giving promises. And it may be the last to bear fruit, but it surely will. Things will come to fruition. Now, let's take this. Now, we've, we've looked at this statement within the context of Habakkuk. Let's look at one of the primary ways it is used by the author of Hebrews. So, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's paint the context of Hebrews. Hebrews is a grand book proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus and the supremacy of the new covenant. Jesus is greater than all that was held dear than, uh, the, under the covenant of Moses. And the author of Hebrews systematically demonstrates this, starting with showing how he's greater than angels, he's greater uh, than... Any human that has ever lived, he is greater than Moses, uh, and he is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And the danger was for these young believers to forsake, to turn their back on the new covenant and go back to the old. That is what was being uh, contended against in this epistle. Now again, remember the, what the Hebrews or what, what the audience of the Hebrews would have been seeing. And in all likelihood, these were predominantly uh, Jewish believers, but I, 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 they certainly there's ramifications for Gentile believers as well here. Think what the, in the first century, language indicates this was written while the temple was still standing. What are they seeing? They see people flocking to the temple, offering sacrifices. But under the new covenant, where is their priest? Unseen. Right? So, there is a call in Hebrews 
to be patient. One day you will see him and to live by faith. Now, having constructed the original context, the author of Hebrews, which we don't know who it is, utilizes this passage in exhorting the readers. And this exhortation reverberates to us as well. Let's start with verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Endurance. What did we hear in Habakkuk? Wait. Endurance and patience are... I don't even want to say two sides of the same coin, because sometimes they're almost synonymous. For yet in a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now in verse 39, we have this powerful declaration. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith unto the preservation of the soul. Okay, this is one of these instances where chapter break is unfortunate. And remember that chapter breaks and your chapters and your verse numbers are not inspired. Sometimes they're put at at fruitful places. Sometimes they they hurt us. And I think this is one of them. Because we often go to 11 thinking something new is happening. The author is continuing this. Remember, we are not of those. Of those who... Uh, um, shrink back, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls, or under the preservation of the soul. So genuine, true faith. So who are the of those? Of those who have faith, we read about them in chapter 11. First, we have a definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So everyone, by faith, believes in these creation principles, if they believe them, uh, by God's grace. It has to be by faith, because were you there? No. So we believe them by faith. Of course, if you an evolutionist lives by faith too, right? Because he wasn't there. So we have that. And then in, uh, in verse 4, now we start with people. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice to Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken up. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, again, notice that theme, unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had faith. God told him something was to happen. Did he see it? No. He lived by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. Then we have Abraham. 
called. He went out not knowing where he was going. God called him to go to the land. He went. We keep going through, through this. Pay it, as you read this, pay attention how much he's stressing. These were things that were not seen. Just like in their context. You are part of a new covenant. Our king is raised. You don't see him now. But continue. Continue in the faith. Don't go back to the shadows and turn your back on the glory of the new covenant. Now, as we continue, and it's a beautiful chapter. Just, if you have never uh, immersed yourself, Hebrews 11 is, is water for the soul. And, and again, continue to think it. We are not of those who shrink back, but are of those who believe under the preservation of the soul. These are the those. We are of these people. And we'll get to that uh, dynamic in a moment. Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So we are of those Abel, Noah, there is a promise that they all are waiting to receive. That promise started in the garden of a coming warrior who was going to crush the serpent's head. And that seed wove its way through history. They all were looking forward to this king, this conqueror, who was going to set up his kingdom, destroy the works of the devil, remove sin. They did not receive what was promised. Why? That apart from us, they would not be made complete. We are not of those. See how this would be encouraging to the original audience as it should be encouraging to us? God has worked. And we look at Abraham and Noah. We look at Moses and the prophets, and they all walked by this same faith, looking to that which is unseen. That is who we are to emulate. But now we get to the beginning of 12. And again, unfortunate chapter break. Reading 11 with the end of 10 and the beginning of 12 is essential because there's a a huge key that I have gone through this book so many times and I'd missed it every time until I preached you this book last time. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by the way, that uh, those are the people we just read about, not people in heaven cheering us on right now, which I hear uh, a misapplication of this verse. This is the great cloud of witnesses is who we just read about. These are our witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter or author and finisher of Faith. First off, there's a, a slight translation issue. Some translations just have uh, the, the author and finisher of faith, and some have our faith. Now, there is, is no definite article here uh, to say, like, the faith. Uh, the author and finisher of faith. I think that is the best translation. Why? Because what have we just been reading about? Faith, right? We are not of those who shrink back but have faith under the preservation of the soul. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. And I'm convinced 
that the author is trying to stress here. That all that we have read in chapter 11, Abel, Noah, Moses, they did these things because Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. They didn't do these things in their own power. And as we have come to this point in, uh, in Hebrews, we would get this. Why? Because they've been speaking of Jesus as our high priest. We always live, we always are saved. Why? Because He intercedes forever to save to the uttermost those that come to faith through Him. So ultimately, the, all these things, we, we see Abel, we see Moses, we see the prophets, but we learn from them not to fix our eyes on them, but to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? He's the one that originated your faith. He is the one that's going to bring it to completion that we just read about. When is that completion? When all the redeemed are gathered together. When we recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. This faith that we've been reading about. Because if it's our faith or the faith, we think that Jesus sat down and wrote, wrote all the points of faith that we need to believe. Of course, he, he, is, he is the one that gave us the terms of the new covenant and inspired all the scriptures. But this is talking here, all of faith in this context has been about a, a person's active faith that they live by. And that faith comes from Christ. He is the author and finisher. And thus, live by faith. Think of it. Fix our eyes on Jesus. There's an irony there, Right? All unseen, and he's telling us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Of course, it's figurative right now. We fix our eyes on Jesus, fixing our hearts, our minds, upon his, first, uh, upon his finished work, upon his uh, promises, upon his person. Live by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. So, I, I, again, that's why it's extremely important for us to understand many of the foundations of our scriptures. In the New Testament, everything in the New Testament has roots in the Old. Whether in promise or shadow. All right. This last one now. Now, so Jerusalem falls in 586. And remember I, I, I said that the Israel is still very much in exile. And here's what I mean by that. Imagine before the fall of Jerusalem. There was a Davidic king ruling in Jerusalem. There was a priesthood ruling in Jerusalem. And they, um, well, they, even before 586, they started to lose their sovereignty. But ultimately, they lived under their own sovereignty, meaning uh, they weren't uh, underneath the, the oppression of uh, foreign rulers. But in 586, the king was taken, the uh, city was burned, the temple was destroyed, and things were never the same. Things were never the same in Israel. First off, only one more king arose from the Davidic line. 
That's all there's going to be. That happened about 580 so some years later with our Lord. We're going to get into that here. Remember, God promised David that one would ascend to the throne from his line. He made a promise. Now, turn to Jeremiah 22. It's befitting to note that David is part of this continuing what is called the seed promise. The seed promise begins in the garden with Eve. It goes through Seth. It goes through Noah, Shem. It goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Continues to weave its way through history. Actually goes through uh, Rahab the prostitute. Did you know that? It's an amazing story how God took that prostitute from Jericho and brought her into the messianic line then it finds its way to David then Solomon it it continues and then there comes the time of the exile and in verse 24 of Jeremiah 22 Coniah or Jeconiah Or Jehoiachin, those are three names. They always, that's the one hard thing about the Bible is you've got to learn a bunch of names for a one person. <laughs> Verse 24, as I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. So the Chaldeans are coming, they're going to take him. And a signet was a, a, a stamp of royal authority, a signet ring. And the Lord is saying, no, you were this. Going back to your father David, you were my extension, my king, the, the Davidic line, I'm going to tear you off. And we continue to read on some... Uh, talking about none of his offspring will, will, will succeed on the, on the throne. So, again, th- thinking of what things looked like in Jeremiah, is the promise lost? Wait a second. God promised that David would have one on his line. And he has taken Je- Jeho- uh, uh, Jeconiah off his hand. Does this mean that there will be no Messiah? No king. Now they go into exile. And in Haggai, Haggai along with Zechariah are really written in about the, probably the same year. Now the context of Haggai is they have come back into the land, but they they have... They're showing no desire to rebuild the temple. And the Lord basically says, you're living in paneled houses and my house lies in ruins. Which is a demonstration they're not seeking the kingdom first. They are not seeking God first. 
And so Haggai goes and brings the word, and that, again, galvanizes the people, and they begin to build the temple. Now, there was a man who was governor of Judah, not king, governor. And his name is Zerubbabel. And in verse 20 through 23, we read, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, two things that, would be, that are very easy to miss here. First is the name Zerubbabel. The name Zerubbabel means translated seed from Babylon. Knowing the seed promise, it's very interesting that that would be his name because the, uh, the ring was taken off uh, of his hand, Jehoiachin. And now it's saying, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. Thus, here, although subtle, the messianic promise is reestablished. And it never went away. Why? Because God still had his seed even in the exile. In Babylon. Now, what's very interesting is, as you read in Zechariah, there's an interesting scene. Uh, there is a high priest uh, whose name is uh, Joshua, and so we actually see there's prophets in Jerusalem. There's a prophet. There's Zerubbabel, who is of this line, and he said, "I'm going to make you a signet," which, again, the, the ancient ears would have understood what the dynamic there was. And then, um, you, so you had prophet, priests, and kingships. You had the three central operating systems of Israel. And the Lord commands them to go make a crown. What do you, th I mean, if you were in that original context, what, you, what would you think is going to happen? And who do you think is going to have that crown put on his head? Zerubbabel, of course. But the Lord commands them to put the crown on the high priest's head, whose name is Joshua, which is probably our Lord's name, and makes the declaration that the days are coming when the branch will come, which is still a Davidic term, and in those days a priest will be on his throne. Thus, this turned into a promise of a coming Davidic king that is going to also be a priest. So, again, understanding that backdrop just oftentimes makes the, the text come alive. Now, to con just to kind of give a New Testament point of connection here, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Just to show you the link that uh, we have incontrovertible evidence that Zerubbabel came into the line of Christ... It is declared at the beginning of the book of Matthew. 
verse uh, 11, we see, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Now, Jeconiah is that same Keniah. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. So there it is. Yeah, that is uh, chapter uh, 1, verses 11 and 12. So Zerubbabel... We see, again, the name means seed from Babylon or seed of Babylon. The seed's promise was still alive even in the exile. So <clears throat> given that this is, you know, again, I, you often meet here on Wednesdays to, to form and discuss worldview issues, uh, we want to bridge contexts. And let's, let's consider what the problems were throughout the text that we noticed. Well, first, when we look at the northern kingdom, uh, idolatry and culture, uh, cultural and counterfeit were all up there. Idolatry is still alive and well. Uh, and, and yes, oftentimes it doesn't take the, the, the form of, of, of worshiping a physical object, but sometimes it does. Idols are made with both our hands and our minds. Cultural decay, I think that goes without saying. Unless you are living under a rock, it has been amazing the downgrade. Just in the last, I mean, I look at from when I graduated high school to now, but even the last two, three years, the downgrade, the cultural decay, and how it infiltrates the church. Um, an example, uh, one, um, one of the uh, members of our of the church um, down in Egan, uh, her father died. And her father was, um, uh, and, and she would acknowledge this, was, was very much liberal. Uh, but attended, attended a church, and out of respect and love for the family, uh, we, we went to the funeral of the father. And it was a, I can't even remember the name of the church, but it was, in, um, it was in downtown Minneapolis, actually pretty close to back at 24th and Nicollet, not too far from there. Uh, and walking in, the whole sanctuary was adorned with rainbows. And I really, sitting there thinking and looking at it, I mean, it was everywhere, was really thinking this is not much different than idols being set up in the house of God. And the need for repentance and the dangers of God coming to judge are still alive and well. And then we have counterfeits. Uh, Jeroboam is a, a key one for us to, to note. He knew, and it demonstrates this fear, evidence, he understood Jerusalem was key to faithful worship under the Old Covenant. And instead of following that which was decreed by God by faith, he produced a counterfeit. And again, I would submit to you, 
how often do we look throughout the world, and especially within the church, the church trying to figure out the way they want to do it because of their own desires, because of their own fears of losing power, of not making money. It is all over the place. It is a danger out there. It's a danger for us. It is a pressing danger for us. We see the need to recognize what God has proclaimed in His Word in regards to what is right and what is wrong, in regards to doctrine regarding the the true, pure message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that cannot be altered. As Paul would say at the beginning of Galatians, if anyone preaches the gospel other than the one that which you've heard, let him be anathema. We cannot alter that. And we cannot make the church operate just any way we want to. God has set up His his rules, His framework for His church for our good. This this isn't uh, for, for our demise, it's for our good. And thus, it all comes back again. The the primary issue is trust. And so the call, of of course, is to repent, to turn our back on that which displeases God, which we know clearly from His Word that is not in accord with His will, His design, with His truth, and live by faith. Live by faith. We all are tested every day to live by faith. And faith, ultimately, as we read in Hebrews, is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we read in Hebrews, well, we have need of endurance. Again, um, I I remember reading James. (laughs) You know, James has counted all joy. Count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, endurance isn't a real happy word because endurance oftentimes implies you're going through something difficult. And again, that's one of those passages that I probably had read a hundred times before I noticed what was being produced. Faith produces endurance. God wants you to learn to stay steadfast in faith under difficult circumstances. Endurance is a good thing. It is a good thing to develop. It is a good thing to cultivate. And the way God does it is by oftentimes sending us through the ringer. And again, why do we stand? Well, our endurance isn't something that we conjure up. It doesn't come out of our own power. Our endurance comes from the one who endured for us. That's why we can, again, look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. I'd like to open it up now. We have about 15 minutes left. And uh, let's just, uh, anything that anybody would want to share as far as implications that have risen out of the text uh, that, uh, that really do hit home, uh, regarding uh, our modern situation here, uh, I, I the one thing about waiting and, li- and, and living by faith is it's getting harder in our culture. It is getting harder, and we need to endure. 
We need to live by faith, knowing that which is unseen. Yes, Brian. When you were speaking of the peaks and valleys, how the, 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 there would be good kings and then bad kings, mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and the Jews were uh, you know, on board with the program, and then idolatry and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It, it almost seems like in today's day and age, when we look at the uh, idolatry and cultural decay, that we can see people who people who are not uh, familiar with God's word would think that this is all new stuff. This right. is happening for the right. first time. Right. When in essence, th- this is nothing new. This is this has happened before and again yep. and again yep. and again. So we're we're just part of. The ebb and flow, if you will, yep. of, and, of God's history. Right, you know, that's the thing is, is you know, for for in our in, in our context, as far as our country, I know, I, I would say, where's the peak? You know, we seem to have been on the on the downgrade first. But again, we're remember we're looking at at hundreds and thousands of years of history. So oftentimes the the land would be at rest for forty years, and then they'd go go back. But uh, yeah, I mean, as far as history goes. Uh, culturally, uh, God raises up nations. He brings them down. Uh, he, he, he brings about uh, restoration. I, I hesitate to use the word, the word revival just because of sometimes of some of the modern connotations that come with it. We think of a, you know, we think of a, a revival by nature is an attempt, you know, outside the city. And, and <laughs> I mean, ultimately, a revival in its essence is God giving life. Uh, life to to a people in in a, in a powerful way, and um, you know, actually, I was asked to write a, an article last year on revival, and I'm like, oh, what do I? Uh, okay, I, I I don't like that term that much, but maybe I can use this as, and I used actually the, the opportunity in the in the article uh, to you have uh, again this ebb and flow, and uh, throughout the judges and the kings, and the revi- ultimate revival, I have noted, we're part of the, by becoming a believer in Jesus of Nazareth, you're part of this grand revival of the ages that God is giving to his people. Uh, the reason why it's, it's good to look at it like that, because that's right, really rooted in Hebrews, is God has been doing this throughout history, uh, giving new life, uh, raising people from the dead. And... Um, Again, I, I really do think as we look in that old, the Old Testament pattern, there was never lasting. Even Josiah. Remember, just good, good King Josiah. Uh, there wasn't a king like In fact, uh, the, the way he's recorded, he was, uh, in a, in, as far as his relentless devotion to God, he exceeded even David. I mean, you read of his exploits. And the whole land experienced uh, peace and rest. And what happened? Right after he died. What we needed a better king who wouldn't who, he died, his leadership went away, and the, and the people went, went down. We needed a better covenant, not one that uh, could never perfect. We needed the eternal, as the book of Hebrews calls it, we needed the eternal covenant with the eternal priest who doesn't die, with the eternal king who will never die. That again, that is a huge part, I think, to look back at Old Testament history. It, it's glaring what was needed. A better king, a better priesthood, and a better covenant, and we have it.
Anything else anybody wants to share? Yes. 